Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's episode features a discussion of the top foreign policy issues of the day and in the presidential election. Also, Wessel's economic update and the final installment of our Paris Climate Talks series. Before I get to the show, I want to remind you to email your comments or questions to experts who have been on the program to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll try to get them answered in upcoming episodes. My guest here in the studio today is Jeremy Shapiro, a fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy and in the Center on the United States and Europe. He is also editor of the Foreign Policy Program's blog, Order from Chaos, and was a member of the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Fred. Let's start with that blog's name, Order from Chaos. What does it mean? Um, Well, primarily it's supposed to be a catchy title to intrigue readers, but um, I think it also reflects uh, a view that we had that the world is somewhat more disordered in the last few years than than it used to be, and that primarily what our job in foreign policy is is to think about ways to create order out of that, that chaos. That is the sort of fundamental idea of foreign policy is that the world is chaotic and policy needs to be aimed at, at creating order out of it. And uh, uh, listeners can find it on our website at brookings.edu slash order from chaos. I advise everyone to go check it out. Some good stuff there. Let's focus on the current administration of Barack Obama. What foreign policy issues do you think he is or has performed well at? Well, I think that, um, you know, the signature achievement, I suppose it's a a very normal thing to say, uh, but I guess I shouldn't be afraid of the conventional wisdom, is is, has been uh, the Iran deal. Um, In the Iran deal, which is, uh, you know, which now that it's concluded sort of seemed inevitable, but in fact at no point was, uh, the president saw through an incredibly contentious international and domestic debate and managed to, I think, achieve a sort of signature non-proliferation achievement, uh, but also to fundamentally reorient uh, the politics between the U.S. and Iran, Iran and the international community, which can at least begin the 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 process of bringing Iran back into an international community, and and hopefully over time, reduce the the threat that uh, Iran poses to order in its region and beyond. In spite of that, we had intense domestic political opposition to that deal. You had a U.S. senator from Arkansas and a whole bunch of other senators writing a letter to the Iranian leadership, saying basically, "We won't support this deal." I mean, what do you uh, what do you make of the um, the opposition and where we are now in terms of the rhetoric about the deal? Look, I think that um, the deal. One of the reasons why it's a signature achievement is because it was very controversial, and uh, it's only it's only impressive if you achieve something against opposition. Frankly, but uh, I was on the side of the president uh, to lay my cards down. So I think that that ex- my my view of the opposition is essentially that it has a very different view of how to deal with Iran. That it's not fundamentally about the Iran deal or the details of the Iran deal. We pretended to fight about that. We pretended to fight about centrifuges and pathways to bombs. What we were actually fighting about is the overall U.S. approach to Iran and to the Middle East. And it's the view of uh, the president's critics on this deal fundamentally that Iran is inherently, irreversibly aggressive and a problem and fundamentally needs to be taken care of uh, as a, it, ultimately, I suppose, by regime change because there is no way of reforming it. So everything that we do to create a better relationship with Iran, to try to change their incentives and their behaviors to operate better is just a mistake. It's just a appeasement to uh, aggression and that this deal represents part of that. 
I think that, you know, that's that's a, a dispute about the facts of Iran to some degree. But I think it's important to lay the cards on the table. What the opponents of this deal are saying is Iran cannot change and it is irrevocably an enemy of the United States and irrevocably an enemy of world order. And we need to f- fundamentally have a war, maybe a very long war, maybe not a terribly military war, but at the very least a cold war and probably ultimately a hot war to um, eliminate this Iranian regime. That is an incredible, incredibly difficult, incredibly bloody, incredibly violent task that the American people don't remotely want. And I think the proposition hasn't been tested uh, sufficiently as to whether we need it. Uh, And in fact, the great thing about being the United States, there are some disadvantages, is that we have a big reserve of power. Uh, We can afford to test propositions like whether a country can change. Iran is not a direct and immediate threat to the United States or even even to its region. Um, it though, the, That threat could unfold over time, but we have time to react. And there is no reason to decide now that we have to fight this long war against Iran. And I think the Iran deal represents an effort to, to do that experiment and it is a worthy one. So that's one of President Obama's signature achievements. What about an area, Jeremy, where he has uh, maybe not done so well? It's not so much that I would point to an area to say where he has not done so well. I think that he, I think that his problem generally in foreign policy has been that he hasn't been able to bring along the Congress and therefore hasn't been able to bring along um, the American people. Uh, and this, this generically limits uh, the types of things that he can do, the degree to which he can um, have uh, bold experiments, the degree to which he can be proactive on foreign policy. I mean, a great example of this is trade. He's been trying to fashion, had some success in fashioning a very forward-leaning proactive trade agenda, but with the the constant problems in bringing along the Congress and convincing the Congress, actually, that, that looks like a very weak agenda to the rest of the world. And I think you see that on issue after issue. And I think that this reflects a little bit uh, certainly the polarization of uh, of our debate and the fact that foreign policy is no longer at all exempt from the partisan debates to the extent that it ever was, frankly, but certainly it's not now. But I think also there's something to fault the president for here. I think he, he didn't recognize uh, early on in his presidency that Congress is an essential partner on foreign policy, um, that you have to bring them in from the beginning, that you have to treat them with a great deal of respect, and that you do, even in the partisan political environment of Washington, you do have at least a chance of sort of implicating them in your policies, getting them involved in your policies so that they share some of your priorities and risks. I think the president has come to this late, and we've seen for example, in the ISIS debate, he's now sort of demanding of the Congress that they take responsibility but uh, for by, for example, doing an authorization for the use of military force. And it's quite funny to see the Congress essentially saying, well, no, we don't want we don't want responsibility for that. God forbid we should actually weigh in on an important foreign policy issue. Uh, so there's plenty of fault on both sides. But but I do think that early on, this is a mistake that he made and it still haunts him. Well, we know when Senator Barack Obama was serving in Congress. He was on the Foreign Relations Committee, but he didn't have a ton of foreign policy experience. And there's a lot of talk now at this turbulent moment in the world that that voters will or should want the next president to have foreign policy experience. How important do you think it is that the next president have 
experience in foreign policy? Yeah, not very. And I say that as a foreign policy uh, practitioner, so it pains my little heart. But two points to, to support that. The first is that there is no job like being president on foreign policy or anything else. On a certain level, there is no experience for it except being uh, president. Uh, but not even secretary of state. Not even secretary of state. And the, and the reason fundamentally is the president is the only person in the American system who, uh, or at least in the executive branch, who has to integrate domestic politics and foreign policy in a way which privileges both and which, which tries to square the two. Nobody in the Congress or in the rest of the executive branch does that. And so you see in a secretary of state, you see somebody who is basically – who can basically make the point that somehow domestic politics sullies foreign policy. Somehow to take into account a, a, a political constraint or a political factor is somehow wrong. The president can't operate that way, doesn't operate that way. No president has ever operated that way. So that so it really is where the buck stops, um, and I think that there isn't a lot of experience that can prepare you for that. But secondly, the the issues of foreign policy, the meat of foreign policy, the details of foreign policy, the things that I spend my my days and weeks on are not um, you know they're not rocket science. Um, they can be they can be learned. It's very important that the president choose the, to have the right people around him, I'd recommend me, but others are available. Um, but, you know, they, they can brief him up on the issues pretty quickly. What he has to do, what the, the real value of the president is exercising judgment, knowing who to pick, being able to sift through what will inevitably be a vast constellation of conflicting information and make difficult judgment calls that integrate both domestic and foreign policy considerations. So what is the experience that um, that lends itself to that? It's certainly not deep study of the Nagorno-Karabakh issue. Um, as a matter of fact, that would hurt you in that because it would bias your views toward thinking that the Nagorno-Karabakh issue has a higher priority in U.S. domestic politics than it actually does. Uh, I'm going to guess real quick that it has something to do with Afghanistan. Uh, Educate no, not, me on this one. Not quite. Um, yeah, well, I mean, of course, the point of it is that nobody's ever heard of it. That's so right. don't feel bad about that. But yeah, it's an issue in the in the um, South Caucasus between Armenia oh. and Azerbaijan, which, um, believe it or not, I did spend a fair amount of time on when I was in the U.S. State Department. It remains an unsolved, frozen conflict. And actually, we had a talk on it here yesterday at Brookings, which is why it's in my mind. So your listeners can rest assured that at Brookings, we are dealing with all of the issues they have never heard of and don't want to hear of. Um, Terrific. Yeah, but um, uh, but I think what, it, what I'm trying to say on a more general level is that for the president, it makes very little sense. It's not necessary to be deeply expert in these semi-obscure issues um, because there always is somebody in the U.S. government who is and can get him up to speed when it's necessary, what he needs to be able to do is to exercise that judgment and to integrate the various factors. Well, let's take a quick break right now to hear from David Wessel, and then we'll come back to the conversation with Jeremy about foreign policy in the presidential election. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. The end of the year is often a time when people look back, but recently I was asked to look ahead, to look ahead 25 years. Now, that's risky. No one is very good at it. Science fiction writers are probably the best, but you only know with hindsight if it's possible to tell who got it right. So to avoid being mocked for my lousing predictions by some wise guy in 2040, let me pose a few questions that preoccupy us today that we'll be able to answer fully only with the passage of time. One, 
How many human workers were displaced by robots and artificial intelligence? Now, we know from history, technology erodes jobs. Farmers lost jobs when we mechanized the farm. Factory workers have been fearing automation for more than half a century. History tells us it works out. We get new jobs. Today, we have service sector jobs, web designers, massage therapists that were unimagined a generation ago. Today, we're hearing these warnings again. Machines long ago replaced muscle. Now we're worried that computers are replacing the human brain, the driverless car, face recognition software, computers that actually can learn for themselves. So we don't know. Should we be reassured by history, or is this time different? Question two. Did the gap between winners and losers in the labor market continue to widen? We have seen an inexorable increase in almost every measure of inequality for the past three decades. Educated workers earn a lot more than less educated. The top 1% are pulling away from the rest of us. Now, it hasn't always been this way. The decades after World War II saw shrinking wage inequality. We can easily catalog the forces that are propelling this inequality. Weaker unions, globalization has strengthened the hand of capital, technology, the changing of social mores. It's more acceptable for those at the top of law firms or baseball teams to take a larger share. What we don't know is which of these forces will persist and which will be restrained by government policy to reduce inequality. Finally, question three. Were we stuck in an era of slow growth or secular stagnation, as former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers calls it? The years after the Great Recession saw very disappointing economic growth and lousy business investment, despite rock-bottom interest rates. This fueled the notion that the U.S., and perhaps the whole world, has reached the end of the growth road. Slow growth in labor forces, low productivity growth, a surplus of saving, a dearth of new investment opportunities, a dearth of new ideas. You get the picture. Some argue that everything worth inventing had been invented, and we were doomed to marginal improvements. Others argue that technology is allowing companies to create enormous value with very little investment and very little employment pretending a persistent glut of savings and not enough money in people's pockets to spend. Still others said this was all temporary, and it would ease as the economy returned to normal. We'll see. I'm David Wessel. This is my economic update. Look for the answers in 2040. And now back with Jeremy Shapiro here in the studio. Jeremy, what are the foreign policy issues that you think are driving the electoral conversation? Um, I think that you see very, very clearly uh, a sort of complex of of two deeply interrelated issues driving uh, the foreign policy conversation. I'm always a little bit unsure in what priority to to put them because they're so interrelated. But it's essentially the question of immigration and terrorism. Uh, and really, this is uh, somewhat depressingly a foreign policy conversation of fear. It is a question of how much, how at threat are we from these foreign sources? Uh, on the one hand, immigration, which is just, which is people coming in and having an economic and cultural effect on our, on our society, and in a related way, terrorism, which is people coming in, even though of course in general they don't come in, but that's still the way it's conceived of and talked about in the electoral campaign, uh, and having a, an impact on our immediate lives and on our security. Um, and I think this reflects the fact that um, people want to see in an American president someone who can protect them from the world, uh, protect them from the the, the economic uh, winds that blow from outside the country, protect them from uh, the security threats that come from outside the country. Uh, and protect them even from the cultural threats that come from outside the country. And uh, 
it does seem to me that this that the broad the conversation in the presidential election, especially of course on the Republican side, which is where almost all the conversation is, is revolving around this question of how can the president protect us from these foreign threats, from immigration, from terrorism? Well, uh, terrorism then takes us directly to ISIS or ISIL or Dash, whatever we want to call it here. Following their attack in Paris, you wrote on the Order from Chaos blog about how to not overreact in the response. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, um, the, the, the sort of interesting thing about terrorism is that it is never, uh, at least for advanced societies, a direct threat in any sort of existential way, despite the fact, despite what many of our politicians uh, say. Um, the type of attack we saw in Paris or in San Bernardino could never be a threat to a great nation like the United States or France. Eight thugs with automatic weapons can kill some people, but they cannot threaten a nation like ours. And frankly, hundreds of them can't. What can threaten a nation like ours is that in the process of responding to an attack like, like, in, like in San Bernardino or in Paris, that we destroy the things that are most precious to us, like our freedoms, like our civil liberties, uh, that we engage in foreign policy adventures in order to try to make ourselves feel more secure and more safe that actually erode our power and uh, erode uh, this, the sense in the world that we are um, actors that have other people's interests at heart. So, I mean, the Iraq war, I think, is a sort of classic example. To the extent that that was a reaction to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, it was significantly more damaging to the United States than the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Uh, and I think we have to understand that the purpose of terrorism, which is a weapon of the weak, is to create reactions like this and to push you to destroy yourself. It's a very effective mechanism because, as the name implies, it generates a lot of fear Fear generates a political need to do something, and these are the answers that are come that people come up with. I understand that, and I have to say, if I was in the shoes of a lot of these political decision makers, I I would I would probably be forced to make a lot of very similar decisions. Thank God I'm not. I'm an analyst, and I can say uh, that to, regardless of the political need for these things, they do not make us safer. Uh, and in fact, of fact, they are one of our the only road to really the the only existential threat that we face from terrorism. So, if uh, if this constellation of immigration and terrorism and fear are sort of the issues that are most on the mind of the electorate, um, what issues do you think should be in the conversation, but maybe aren't? Yeah, it's a fair question. Um, but I think here I'm going to, if I haven't already betray the sort of deeply elite bias that um, that comes out of Beltway think tanks. Um, but, you know, I am who I am. Um, it's not been my observation that electoral conversations on the critical foreign policy issues of the day uh, dramatically improve uh, policymaking on those issues. Um, I think you see, uh, I guess, climate change is the best example, right? Um, but terrorism is another good example. Um, the more you involve the the politicians and the electorate in these discussions, um, the more difficult it gets to introduce nuance and to introduce the inevitable trade-offs that come in making complex policy. I recognize this is a sort of undemocratic uh, thing 
uh, to say, and it's not, it's not, I'm try- not trying to make the point that it's not legitimate. Of course it is legitimate. It's even necessary for candidates to discuss what's on the minds of their, of their constituents and to, and to outline the policies that, that they intend to pursue. That's, I'm not trying to prevent them from doing that. But I have to say, when I think of, when I, when it, when it occurs to me, well, gee, there's this issue out there that's a lot more important, and and I can talk about those if you want, than um, than the issue of fear and terrorism. And I think there are many such issues. It's not my second reaction to say, gee, I wish the uh, presidential election was talking about it. <laughs> Actually, I'm kind of glad that the presidential election isn't talking about it. All right, well, then let's set the presidential election aside. Uh, 2016 is almost upon us. But even looking beyond that, um, yes, I would like you to talk about issues that you think are the most important um, in terms of foreign policy. Sure. I think that the, from my perspective, the issue that is is most important um, is is this sort of emerging question of international order, and it reflects um, it reflects the in the name of our blog, and it, I think it reflects a lot of the work that we're doing here. There has been in the last five to ten years. Um, the the reemergence of something that I think people always predicted would would reemerge of geopolitical competition between great powers. Um, this is principally about uh, the United States and China and Russia, but it also involves other uh, emerging powers um, like Brazil and uh, Indonesia and Turkey and India. Um, and I think what we're seeing is. After a, after a fairly long period of uh, first sort of bipolar competition and then, and then a sort of unipolar moment, we're seeing the emergence of a world in which power is much more diffuse and in which, um, which the institutional system isn't well set up to contain. The institutional system kind of set up by the U.S., after World War II, maybe? The, yeah, and then consistently modified, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, and so we have a, a... It's very difficult for the UN to function. It's very difficult for um, the a lot of the cooperative mechanisms of international order to function in a world in which there are so many emerging power centers. Um, and I think that that's the sort of fundamental problem of our time. Um, I think it particularly comes to a head in in looking at Russia and China, but it's those aren't the only issues. Um, I would also say that the uh, that the a lot of the issues that we focus on as crises on a daily basis, I think particularly of Syria, and they are certainly crises in their own ranks. But um, to my mind, the failure to deal with them does have a lot to do with the, the consequences of the breakdown in international order and the breakdown in the international capacity to create order. So the U.S.-Russian divide over Syria is, didn't create Syria, but it has made it a lot more difficult to solve. Uh, and I think you see that consistently, the fact that the U.N. hasn't worked. These are the mechanisms which were meant to contain uh, the outbreak of chaos because everybody recognized that that could happen in various parts of the world. They were always imperfect and they've never functioned all that well. But when the great powers, when Russia and China and the United States, but even in Brazil and India are on different pages, these mechanisms don't function at all or very badly. And that makes every problem that we already have tremendously worse and tremendously harder to contain. And I think that that's the fundamental problem that we're facing in foreign policy. 
Let me ask you one last question, and it has to do with leadership. You hear people say, well, America should just lead. The president should just lead. I mean, a lot of it's probably just rhetoric. But what is the, uh, what is the role of, uh, quote, American leadership as a, as a tool in um, trying to address this chaos problem? Yeah, you know, I wrote a piece for uh, with Dan Byman, another Brookings scholar for um, Foreign Policy magazine a few months ago, in which we described sort of 11 worst cliches that foreign policy analysts come up with. And um, one of them was the president should exercise more leadership. And uh, the reason we, we identified that is because leadership, this idea of leadership is often an excuse for lack of analysis. Basically, you're saying, you know, gee, if the president just cared about this more, if he just devoted more resources or more intelligence to this question, uh, he could rally everything. And actually, most problems that the United States has in the world today um, do re- reflect actually real conflicts of interests and and aren't simply a question of the president paying more attention to the problem and somehow exercising some sort of leadership capacity. Um, so I think – so I, w- I always want to be wary of that argument. Having said that and having noted in the article that I I have at least at one point in my career used every one of the cliches that I listed, um, I think that the U.S. does have a special place in the international system. Uh, And you could call it a place of leadership. It's certainly a central place because the U.S. is best placed to uh, create uh, consensuses around shared goals that are in the parlance of political science public goods, um, which means that everybody wants them, but nobody wants to pay for them. Uh, And the U.S. has been moderately successful and certainly more successful than any other country um, over time at uh, creating institutions and norms and just groupings um, that can support these types of public goods on on everything from trade to freedom of navigation to the to the international postal union and I think we often underestimate just how important this stuff is um, and I think uh, as another Brookings person who also happens to be my boss wrote in a brilliant book uh, Bruce Jones the United States still has a lot of capacity to do this and still does this they still have uh, they still have an ability to lead in this way. But my own view is that 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 ability has been somewhat diminished in recent years by the diffusion of power. Uh, The United States still has a very special place, but it is a a somewhat different place and it requires a different kind of leadership and frankly a more shared leadership than we're used to in order to to do the same types of tasks that they have historically done. Well, that's that's very interesting and we will put the, uh, the link to the FP Magazine article in the show notes. And actually, we're going to hear from Bruce Jones here in just a minute. Jeremy, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You can learn more about Jeremy Shapiro and his research on our website at brookings.edu, where you can also find the Order from Chaos blog. And now in part five of our Paris Climate Conference series, our Vice President and Director of Foreign Policy, Bruce Jones, wraps up the series and looks ahead. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me. So what happened in Paris over the last two weeks? I'm going to butcher a quote from Churchill and say that what we saw is in global climate issues, not the end, not even the beginning of the end, uh, but the end of the beginning. We've, for years now, had a global debate as to whether or not to have a common framework through which to attack climate change. And we haven't had one. And Paris, we got one. We got a global inclusive deal 
that allows all countries to be part of the fight against climate change. That's a big deal. So Rio and Copenhagen uh, and Kyoto were not that? They were not that. They, none of them had all the big players in. Uh, none of them had the kind of framework for action that this has. So this is really the first time we've had a comprehensive global deal to tackle climate change. But it's the beginning. So the, uh, the negotiators went into a little bit of overtime uh, going into Saturday, this uh, past Saturday, to come up with an agreement. Um, what does the agreement mean as a strategy for dealing with, with global climate change? It's a starting gun. It's a, a, a framework in which everybody agrees to tackle it. They agree on how much, how much ambition. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody agrees on how to tackle it. So now what we'll do is every country will individually come up with their own plans. Some already have done. We'll now move towards implementation. So it's a starting point. It's like a, it's like the shooting gun at the beginning of a relay race, and, and now we know where we're starting and which direction we're headed. So now we'll have to get moving. So are these, uh, say, individual country agreements binding countries to act in certain ways? And, and will the Obama administration specifically uh, be able to take any action considering the domestic political climate here? The Paris Agreement danced a fine line. Um, there are several elements of the agreement that are legally binding. But one thing which is not legally binding is how you act on tackling climate change. That is, as the terminology goes, nationally determined. It's up to every country to figure out how it wants to act. It's legally bound to report on that. It's legally bound to allow the UN to monitor it. But it's up to the countries themselves on how to act. Uh, the big point of that is that the Obama administration doesn't have to submit this deal to Senate ratification. So then the question becomes, can the United States act in its own policy terms? And here the, United, the administration has already been trying through the, uh, through the EPA, through a number of regulatory tools. But let me make a different point. The, the big purpose of this agreement and the big purpose of having, of having ambitious language and having elements that are legally binding is to send a big fat signal to industry that this is the way we're going. What that's going to do is it's going to shift the incentives for how industry allocates its own investments and for how industry lobbies for public investments. And the idea here is not to solve this problem through governments. The idea here is to get industry moving in the right direction and where they're investing in lower carbon energy and renewable energy sources. I'm going to get back to uh, President Obama's role here in a second. But first, what are kind of the main points, the general points that people should know about what comes out of Paris? Uh, the big thing people should know is that the, the agreement in Paris was to aim for a, a rise in, in average global temperatures of, quote, well below 2 degrees. Uh, they talked about 1.5 degrees, although they didn't quite get an agreement on that target. You're talking Celsius. Tell, this is Celsius. Whereas at current business as usual, we're looking at something like a 2.7 to 3.5 degree rise. The science that we have suggests that there's a big difference between those things. It's an imperfect science, um, but everything we know suggests that sticking below 2 degrees rise is going to make us less subject to uh, really extreme uh, shifts in weather. Uh, which can have big effects, for example, on the productivity of agriculture in the Midwest. I mean, these are, are things that have real economic consequences. Talk uh, briefly, if you can, about the the kind of different approaches that the major industrial nations, the big emitters of, of greenhouse gas emissions, versus, say, the smaller countries, the Tuvaloos, if you will. I think that's one of the things that's worth pointing out is that climate change is always treated as a big global issue. 
In fact, it's really an issue for the biggest economies. In the United States, China, the European Union, India, Japan, you don't have to get more than about 10 countries to have about 75 percent of global um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So whether we end up tackling climate change is fundamentally going to be a question of those top 10 or top 15 economies changing the energy mix in their own, uh, in their own economy. That's really where the action is and that's where we have to move after this Paris deal. The Paris deal sets out the framework. Now the big economies have to shift how they do business. The rest of the world will be impacted. So if you're a small African country or a low-lying uh, island state, et cetera, you're really impacted by what happens to changing weather patterns. You can't do anything to tackle climate change. So the second part of the agreement was programs and funds to help those countries deal with the consequences, to deal with what's called adaptation, to kind of change how to cope with the changes that are coming. President Obama said of the deal, quote, we met the moment, unquote. What was his role and his administration's role in achieving this? It's really striking. Um, when we look back on this, we're going to see Obama and his special envoy, Todd Stern, as really having played a critical role, along with John Kerry, to give them credit. Um, the real turning point, we had, had years of non-productive negotiations, failed negotiations, etc. The real turning point came when President Obama and Xi Jinping made an agreement to get serious on a bilateral basis and Todd Stern and his Chinese counterpart crafted a U.S.-China deal on one of the most difficult parts of, of this is on what are called short-term uh, uh, fluorocarbons. It's a technical deal but it was a breakthrough in terms of having the two biggest economies in the world and the two biggest emitters of carbon uh, make a deal in very stark terms about the seriousness of the issue and the need to move forward on a dramatic basis. And that revolutionized the global politics of this. Basically, once people saw the United States and China were both moving and they were moving together, everybody realized they had to move. So it went from being everybody was in a kind of pass the buck, you first, no, you first mode to everybody realizing this is moving forward. Obama also committed himself early on, which is unusual, to attend the Paris summit. This is a close U.S. ally. France was hosting the summit. He committed himself early to going and he committed himself to making a success. He put a ton of uh, time himself of Todd Stern, of John Kerry into this. I don't think this deal would have happened. In fact, I know this deal would not have happened without Obama's, without Obama's role. So looking ahead, what happens now? Now the hard work. Uh, seriously, now the hard work begins because all the major economies have to tackle this question of can we move on to a lower carbon energy pathway? That means big shifts in patterns of investment by industry. It made big shift in patterns of uh, energy consumption by agricultural industry. It makes big shifts in patterns of public investment and in infrastructure. All of that is to come. Everything that's happened so far is uh, pre-negotiation. It's pre-game. Uh, now we've blown the starting whistle, and now we're going to see the real game. Well, again, uh, thanks again for coming on, Bruce, and, and talking about this. Thanks for having me. You can hear all of our audio on the Paris Climate Conference on our SoundCloud channel and also get all the latest analysis and commentary from Brookings experts about the climate change issue on our website at brookings.edu slash planetpolicy. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, artist Jessica Pavone, and online support team of Chris Anichi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahan, and our intern, Karen Wilgergus. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and remember to send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.